You are listening to Australia's tax news podcast, Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals. Welcome to episode 54 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson. If you administer SMSF funds, chances are that you have heard or considered class, or maybe you're even already using class for your SMSF administration work. I met with Kevin Bungert, the CEO of CLASS, to better understand the story of CLASS and the environment it is operating in. My first question to Kevin is, how did CLASS get started? Here's his answer. CLASS was really born out of a need from an SMSF administrator called Smart Super. Andrew Bloor was running that business. They had about a thousand SMSFs, which at the time, back in uh, 2005, was a good number of funds. And they were really struggling in terms of getting consistency with, with, with staff in terms of uh, a, lot, a lot of high staff turnover, uh, keeping people uh, following processes. Uh, it was very manual, uh, very difficult to kind of keep processes consistent and, and uh, keep the quality where it needed to be. And despite having systems in place for workflow and uh, good processes and documentation, everything else, it's very hard to have what is essentially a fairly complex, compliance-heavy process without automation. And, and so they looked at what was around and what was available in terms of how could they take what they were doing and, and really bring it to scale. How would you go from, and Andrew at that point was kind of going, how do I go from a 1,000 funds to 10,000 funds? Because I can't keep doing it the way I'm doing it. And obviously automation was the, was the, was the answer to that and looking at what you can automate and how you would go about that. So they looked at systems that were available. There, there wasn't really anything that they could see that was going to give them that ability to scale, and they, they decided to build it. And uh, one of the questions you've asked is, is about, um, you know, about that decision to go with cloud. I think when they made the decision, obviously the, the first thing was uh, let's build the software that we need for, for Smart Super. They were as a seed client, as the anchor client, as the primary funders of the software. They obviously want to make sure that they were going to get what they needed. But the other thing then was, well, how do you supply this software to the rest of the industry? And when you realise that part of what you need to do is really connect all of the, uh, the dots in terms of all the data sources um, in order to get the automation, then it was pretty clear that this needed to be, at the time, the phrase was software as a service, and it needed to basically be in what was later called the cloud. So it, 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 I think the, the term cloud probably didn't, we didn't really kind of use that or it wasn't really being used until a couple of years later. But software as a service was the term at the time. And the, the great ability of that was to be able to say that all of these different data providers, you could connect those at the server level. You could, you could make sure that you were connecting to any other parties that might need access because it was very clear that people like the trustees themselves and the financial planners needed access as well, not just the accountants who were doing the work. So how do you connect everybody? Obviously, the internet was the answer to that and software service uh, as it was. And it was a, it was a difficult decision. Um, our CTO, uh, Bob Groneman, was, was a, uh, you know, involved in that decision making. And uh, th at the time, it was a discussion about do you build uh, client-server software or do you build software as a service? And it was clear that to deliver this out to the broader audience, to deliver it out to those accountants in rural and suburban areas and to still have this connectivity that you needed to do to have to get scale, that, that, that was the answer. For the first couple of years when we were talking to clients, they would be, but can I have this on-premise? Can I install it? 
I guess what changed was after a couple of years, people um, got got onto this idea of the cloud and they stopped asking that. And, and um, uh, I guess obviously the, the rest is history since then in terms of the, the rate of adoption of cloud. Uh, but that was really, I guess, the the, the start of um, uh, the idea of what we were trying to solve, what we we're trying to address was this level of getting scalability, automation, efficiency in the SMSF administration area. What what year are we talking about? What year? Uh, 2005, was, 2005. Was, was when the business was started. Um, the first couple of years was kind of R&D and I guess the decision about what technology stack and um, how we would go about building software really kind of some of the key decisions were made more in about 2007. Once it was decided what we were going to build, then it was a matter of how do you build it, what technology stacks do you use. Um, we didn't launch to the market until 2009. Uh, I joined the business in 2008. So I, I came on, uh, well, actually I first started working with the business in 2007 and joined in 2008. And part of my focus, I came in as the operations manager and my role was really take what was essentially a research project and turn it into a into a going concern. How do we turn this into a business? And so where was the cloud at in 2005 when first... Oh, I, I don't think the term was really being used. Okay. Certainly we weren't yes. using the term at that stage. It so, was software as a service would, yes. would have been the term at the time. So the software as a service or SaaS... So SAS, SAS was sitting on your server, so users were logging into your internal server so that because there wasn't a cloud yet. Uh, no, so, so when I, it's just terminology. So software as a service sort of evolved into People still um, call it software as a service. I actually really like it because the idea that you're providing the service is really key. You know, in the past, you, you tended to build software, give it to someone, it was their problem to run it. We're very conscious of the fact that as a software as a service provider, as a cloud software provider, we are running that software for our clients. If the software is not working, if it's not working well, then it impacts on it's people's day-to-day -day work. You know, that, that so it's critical that you do appreciate that we're in a service business, that we, we have to make sure that service is running for our clients. Mm -hmm. But it was just a terminology. So the, the architecture was, it was exactly the same. So the software was running um, on the um, servers that you know would later be called referred to as the cloud. I guess the difference would be at that point we were using Macquarie Telecom. Uh, Amazon didn't really have services in Australia at that point. I think, I can't remember what year they, they started in Australia, but I think it was a little bit later than that. And even then, the full range of services wasn't really available from Amazon until a year or two ago. So it's really only been over the last sort of 18 months that you've really had the full range of, of, of Amazon web services in Australia. So uh, prior to that, uh, we were using Macquarie Telecom. So that back in uh, when we launched in 2009, we'd have been using Macquarie Telecom. I see. So the software was always sitting on a third-party server, yep, but, but it just wasn't wasn't called cloud yet. Yeah, the terminology was not cloud at that point. And again, you, you can probably look up when the term was sort of coined and when it got started. But certainly, wasn't in common use here. Mm -hmm. It would have been, I think, you know, more like. Um, 2010 or so before we really sort of started hearing people referring it to cloud rather than software as service yeah. and for some reason it's just one of those things I think that people kind of get the cloud better than they got software as a service so um, it, it certainly seems to have sort of grabbed people's imagination in the way that I guess SaaS did not yeah. as a term. And are you still on AWS? Uh, we're on AWS now yes sir. Uh, everything that we do from a uh, production point of view in terms of what the clients are using is on AWS now. So we did that June last year. 
And did AWS have servers in Australia straight from the start when you no. when you started? No, so they weren't they weren't uh, available in Australia uh, back in two thousand and five, so even in two thousand and nine. And even when they started to make services available in Australia, some of the services that you need in order to uh, ensure um, reliability. So Amazon now has three zones in, in Australia, and so that allows you to make sure that you've got resilience in terms of one server going down, switching to a different zone. I think it's called nodes or something, isn't it? Availability zones is the term that they use. And so um, they only turned on the third availability zone in 2017. I see. So at the very start, Mm -hmm. some of the class data would have set on servers overseas. Oh, no, no, no. We were always very, very clear that the data had to sit in Australia, okay. not just because of some legal requirements around counting records and so forth being in Australia, but also just because the, the strong feedback from clients was that mm-hmm. they want that they want that sort of sovereignty issue resolved. They want to know that the data is on shore. So it was always hosted in Australia. We've never hosted off site. Oh, okay, off-shore. so a, a big requirement that you that you presented to AWS is <clears throat> you must always have our data in Australia. Yes, yes. Yeah. So we started working with AWS before they had the the full range of services, the various services that AWS provides, and they need three regions for some of those to be available, and um, they choose when they make those available in, in, in different regions as well. So we were... Uh, we were waiting for them to basically make that available So because we, we had from uh, day one had to make sure that we meet fairly stringent requirements from the clients in terms of availability, backups, um, uh, security and so forth. So, yeah, always on shore, always um, making sure that we have uh, disaster recovery procedures in place, security and privacy all sort of covered. Yeah. Was Zero already around in 2007, 2008 when you had the idea of... Kind of I think Zero started about the same same time frame. So oh, okay. yeah, they they uh, they would have been in New Zealand at that point. I don't think they came to Australia until yeah. a bit later. So uh, I think they, they might have come to Australia in about two thousand and nine. So, yeah. but they were in New Zealand before that. But so you were at the very forefront of. Yeah, I, I think it, we're, we're very thankful that our, our CTO, along with the rest of the team that was there at that point, made that commitment to go with the the hosted model, to go with the software as a service model. It was certainly a, there was a debate at the time, so we were right on the on the on the cusp of that. I mean, it's interesting when you kind of look back at historically because. Desktop Super was only kind of built, uh, only started. I think the project for that, and it's well, it's 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 uh, yeah, it's a client service style service rather than a cloud based service. So you know, it was right at that period where you you would weigh up your options, the state of technology at the time, uh, and I guess because we were starting from a, a clean slate, we, we when we looked at it and we looked at the problems we were solving, we were prepared to make that commitment to go with what essentially at that time was, was fairly new technology, fairly new architecture, because we could see it was really the only way you were going to service such a fragmented market. How do you get out to those sort of tens of thousands of accounting firms that are spread around the country uh, looking after, you know, 25 to 250 or more self-managed super funds uh, using the internet. You know, the only real way to get to them and still have that kind of enterprise-grade level integration that you need in order to get the automation. Uh, imagine if we had to connect all of our data feeds down to the desktop of every accounting firm. Or sending out CDs. Uh, yeah, just, just not going to work. So class basically grew over 
organically out of a smart super, smart super. The business, so yeah. it basically grew organically out of that so the funding for the building the software etc came out of smart super uh, no so the decision was um to build the software and to make it a commercial offering and and take it out to the broader market so um the idea came from smart super uh, they were the anchor client in terms of helping with requirements uh, we worked out at their office um so uh, you know they helped provide a lot of the resources that we needed to get started but right from the start this was run as a commercial enterprise they did a capital raising a lot of the capital initially uh, obviously came from smart super and some of the other founders like richard barber and a number of other investors many of whom andrew knew by through the smsf administration business because uh, andrew was an advisor being able to basically uh, essentially draw on, on on those contacts from that, that he had and so a lot of our early investment and even if you look at our register now you'll see a, a, quite a number of soft money super funds that are invested in class so obviously people who understand the problem domain and uh, actually have some reasonable balances it was uh, it was good to have those founding shareholders invested but yet yeah, right from the start there was Capital provided by, I guess, angel investors would be the term that people would yeah. use nowadays. But because Class didn't launch until 2009, it started yeah. in 2005. That's yes. four years in the making. Yeah. And, and and right in between that, there was this thing called the global financial crisis in 2008. So, you know, that that was an interesting period in which to be doing a startup. I can yes. tell you, and um, yeah, yeah, having to do capital raises in in 2008, 2009. To, to keep the business going thing. was was a hard slog, yeah. Mm. Yeah, and even without the GFC, financing four years of software development yes. Yes. is a is a long. Yeah, we we had some great founding shareholders who, who were committed to what we were doing, understood what we were doing, and and were committed to to kind of go on that journey. And uh, yeah, very very tough to kind of go to those investors in the middle of the GFC and say. Sorry, guys, I know you didn't really want to crystallise some of those losses, but we need some cash. So, you know, uh, but, uh, yeah, as I said, we were really thank thankful that those shareholders stuck with us through that uh, process and right up until we were profitable in sort of uh, 2014. So you started in 2009 and you probably just started with the thousand funds that you got from Smart Super. Uh, yeah, pretty much, yes. Yeah. So um, we had some initial, uh, so 2009, we, we, we didn't really account, we didn't count Smart Super initially in terms of the work they were doing in terms of trialling and help development. And you know, the, the first commercial client signed in, in February 2009. And that would have been very hard to get the first commercial yeah, absolutely. And who, absolutely. Got, who got the first commercial client? Was it you? Uh, no, no, it was Richard Barber, so uh, our uh, former sales director. And, and uh, they would have had an enormous courage, you know, to go into oh, a look, software. That's... If you know Richard, he is, you know, he is dyed-in-the-wool sales guy. You know, he, he is full of enthusiasm, you know, a lot of energy. And, uh, you know, he is the sort of sales guy who can sell ice to Eskimos. He really is. So, and is uh, Richard but fantastic still around? Uh, so Richard is still working as on a, on a consulting basis. He's actually moved to Canada for with his family, so, um, so uh, which he did last year. Eskimos. Yeah, well, maybe that's right. <laughs> Good point. So Richard brought on the first commercial client. Then yes. after that, it would have got a tiny bit easier and then a tiny bit easier with each 
Each, each year, and, and we certainly found, and it probably would have been a year or two later when we started to get to the point where we had enough of an established base that when you spoke to an accounting firm, they, they might have heard about us from someone else, and that really helps. When, an, when one accountant hears from another accountant that something actually works, that it's a, that it's a great idea, that it, that it actually delivers them efficiency and helps them with their business, then it kind of starts to snowball. So we really started to get some traction after that sort of first couple of years of getting those early adopters who were willing to basically take a, take a chance and, and see if the, the software would work to getting to the point where we could start to actually get those referrals for clients who would then basically go, oh, okay, well, we'll, we'll take it on as well. So how quickly did class grow? First commercial client in 2009, then by 2011 you started getting some traction. How quickly did it go from there? Because by 2015 you were ready for an IPO. Where did you grow from 2011 to 2015? Yeah, by 30 June uh, 2015 we had just over 80,000 funds. Mm -hmm. And it, it, it's one of those sort of uh, typical growth curves. So in terms of very, very slow at the beginning, very hard to kind of get to the point where you get that sort of initial sure. base of clients and then once it starts to sort of pick up it, it kind of ramped up quite nicely and so we would have added in 2015 I think if you went back the year before that we would have been more sort of 50,000 funds so and before that you know it, it can't so it, it did kind of ramp up quite quickly uh, once we started to get that sort of critical mass. And then from 2015 now to 2018 I think you grew you continue to grow I think you're now at 120,000 uh, no, just just under 160,000. Oh, okay, so, sorry. Yep. Yeah, so you basically yeah. doubled since the IPO. Yeah. Yeah. Still majority owned by the initial investors, or is it quite a scattered shareholding now with a lot of retail shareholders? Uh, yeah, with the IPO, what we saw is some of those initial shareholders, I and mean, part of the reason we IPO'd, uh, it was essentially 10 years after we started, was some of those uh, shareholders had been in for 10 years. So giving them the ability to, uh, if they needed to, for their own uh, purposes, to sort of get out of, of class if they needed to, giving them that ability to have a market for their shares was, was, was very helpful given that kind of 10-year time frame. So The initial investors initiated the IPO? Uh, it was part of the, 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 the reasoning was that um, we really needed to broaden the shareholder base to have access to the markets if we needed it for whatever projects we might be doing. But also because, yeah, you do have investors who've been in for 10 years and them having a more liquid market kind of helped. So, so it was a combination of those factors. A lot of those initial shareholders, though, are still investors. And, and in fact, I think it's something like 25% of the shares are, are held by those sort of uh, longer-term uh, initial investors. Um, about 30% is held by the sort of mums and dads, general public. And about 37% is with institutions. And I think that leaves about another 6% of other. <laughs> yes. And did the IPO come along with a capital injection? Uh, so we didn't really... At that point, the, the business was making money. And so we listed under the, under the profits rule. So that basically meant the business was already generating cash. And we raised a small amount of revenue, but mostly it was about a sell-down by some of the existing shareholders to create a, a broader market. So, yeah, we raised about um, uh, just under 5 mil as, as part of the IPA. 
You mentioned that you joined class in 2008. Yes. Where did you come from? Uh, so I was working for a consulting firm prior to that, and my background um, in more broadly in superannuation was sort of consulting, technology-based consulting within the superannuation industry. And until I got involved with Class Super, that was really in the APRA space, so dealing with the large administrators like Super Partners and AAS, which is now part of Link Market Services, but also dealing with the financial institutions and working with them with their superannuation offerings out in the marketplace. And so how did you find out about Class? Had you already been aware of Class for quite a while? We knew about Class for a little while before, um, so I started consulting to them in late 2007. Ah, so you had already an established relationship with them, you were already consulting? Uh, No, it turned out we knew some of the initial founders. So I had worked with Keith Finkelt, who had previously been at BT and a number of others, because the superannuation industry tends to, you know, it's be a relatively stuff. small mm. industry anyway. And so you you know you kind of hear things that are going on. So Keith had been involved from the in the project from, from day one and we had worked together previously in the APRA space. So we got involved initially consulting, helping them with requirements and really understanding what they needed to do in terms of building out the software. But it was, uh, yeah, that was really my first exposure to, I guess, self-managed super funds and that being quite a, quite a different market to, to what we were used to with the APRA space. But when we saw, when I, particularly when I saw what the guys were doing, I was really excited in terms of the potential for what they were doing with their technology, the level of innovation. And it was a you know, really exciting project to be involved in. I'm surprised that the software for APRA funds and SMSFs is so separated. Mm. Uh, maybe I'm wrong with that impression, but I, I have the impression that for no, APRA, there's one set of so- software premium and and others and then for smsf there's another set of software do you think that will merge with time that the apra ones will go more into the smf sphere or the smsf software will go more into the apra yeah it's interesting the problems you face in the different markets are quite different so when you are dealing with apra funds um, your biggest problem is dealing with employers and dealing with the large number of members that you have within those funds so it's all about how do you manage those members and how do you manage the relationships with the communication um, and how if the with the employers and the contributions and any changes that they have in terms of those members so you tend to work through the employers a lot more and that relationship is quite key to um, for a uh, superannuation fund that works in the APRA space the other thing is that in a self-managed super fund a lot of the focus is around the accounting and the tracking of the investments that the fund is invested in that in the APRA space is done by completely different tools. So uh, essentially in the APRA space, the um, uh, the tools that you use, the software that you use to manage your member register is completely separate from that that you use to look after the investments. And the interesting area about self-managed super funds is you're dealing with all of that. You're dealing with the regulatory overhead of, of running a super fund. You're dealing with the members and the member reporting, but only for a small number of members, average of, of you know two members, basically. And then dealing with what is really, the I guess, the core of what class deals with, with which is that investment portfolio and all of the accounting and the financial statements related to that. That gets done quite differently in the, in the APRA space. Hmm. So it's 
kind of unlikely that the two softwares will leak into each other's markets soon. Yeah, there's a little bit of overlap there. The Supermate product, the Supercorp business, uh, they used to, uh, they also had uh, an APRA offering. Um, And so there were a number of smaller APRA funds that were using the Supercorp uh, Supervisor 2 previously. I don't believe they do that anymore. But so, And there's been a number of the APRA-based systems that will do some level of support for self-managed super funds, but again, not not a huge amount of crossover. What do you think are the next big changes in the SMSF administration software technology? Uh, well, obviously, at the moment, we're all pretty preoccupied with the super reforms. We've still got some work to complete it's on T-bar. that. And so, and T-Bar is the next big one. So I think uh, we're just shifting now out of that sort of reform mindset to back to going, okay, what what can we let's shift back and think more about innovation and what can we do and the sorts of areas that are sort of key particularly driven off the back of SIP reforms of client engagement really making sure that if you're an accounting firm or in a planning firm and you're providing services in this space that you're not just doing the admin work but that you're also making sure you are engaged with your clients because the caps and limits and the reporting that you now have to do mean that it's it's more important than ever to really have that strong engagement. So I think what we can do around mobile and leveraging the internet to make sure we're connected with the trustees is is really important aspect of what we need to do going forward. And that's certainly an area that we've been sort of focused on. The evolution of data feeds and the whole area around automation is really interesting at the moment with the number of initiatives like open banking, the new payments platform sort of coming through with obviously changes around privacy and and a lot of things coming out of Europe in terms of the accessibility of data, privacy of data and security requirements. The, uh, there's a there's a there's a lot happening around the way that systems are connected in the cloud and the security and privacy of that, but also about how we drive efficiency off that. And so, I think it'd be it's going to be really interesting to see how far we can drive that data automation off the back of things like open banking and new payments platform. And then I, I guess you know further off you've got things like artificial intelligence, machine learning, and what they can bring to the table in terms of applying. I think particularly in areas like compliance in terms of can, can we have tools where we have continuous compliance where the systems will tell you, hey, you need to do something here because, you know, the, we can tell from the data that there, there's something that needs to be addressed. But I think between the availability of data and the richness of data and the ability to automate and then, uh, you know, things like uh, compliance and being able to automate that or apply machine learning, particularly in those sorts of areas, I think are really interesting areas going ahead. And that compliance piece obviously feeds into audit and, and areas like that, which is obviously an important aspect of, of uh, SMSF administration. Where do you see the, the greatest threat coming in? Do, do you see it more around Zero or MYOB coming into the market with specific products? Or do you see it in the government making SMSF less and less attractive? Oh, look, I think clearly the the biggest threat in terms of the SMSF industry is is government policy in terms of if they if the sorts of decisions like the imputations credit uh, policy that's been floated by the opposition uh, that they, they seem to be clearly targeted at the SMSF market. But I think the obviously even just the super reform the the level of changes, the impact that has on the industry, the level of disruption that causes uh, pre- presents a challenge to, to to the industry. And I think that's that's sort of a 
uh, always something that we, we, we keep an eye on and obviously the association and uh, the accounting bodies and so forth are, are, are very focused on that as well in terms of making sure that there is an alignment between what the, the government is doing in terms of retirement policy and, and how that impacts on uh, self-managed super and the accounting industry. I think you know, the government should keep in mind that the self-managed super funds are a key aspect of what accountants do. I think in the case of accountants that are doing uh, SMSF administration, it will make up on average 20% of their revenue. So if the government uh, wants to impact a very broad range of uh, small businesses, which most accounting firms are, you know, then I think they just need to think about the flow-on impact of some of those policy changes as well. I don't think there's any particular reason to drive people to industry funds, to APRA funds, when self-managed super funds are, from all the reports that we've had in the past, um, doing a good job, that they're working well. So, um, but uh, yeah, obviously something we'll, we, we keep an eye on. Welcome back. It is amazing how fast class went from launch to IPO, just six years from 2009 to 2015. In the next episode, episode 55, Ian Taylor, the chair of the Tax Practitioners Board, will talk about the role in history of the TPB. Until then, thank you for listening. Bye for now and see you in the next episode. <music>